Welcome to the Garage Cast, a weekly podcast focused on innovation, education, and strategy. Hosted by Michael Iani Polarchio. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I am Michael Iani Polarchio, your host here on the Garage Cast. I am the head of innovation and strategic projects at Branksome Hall for those of you who might be joining for the first time. And for all of you who've been with us over many, many episodes, welcome back to episode 29 this fine Friday, May the 19th. We've got a good show, a little more student-centric. We've been talking a lot about leadership and educators and school culture and innovation culture. And today I want to talk a little bit about some things that relate more to students and STEM and specifically women in STEM. We will do one tech tool tip and a few other random things that have been on my mind. So welcome back, everybody. Let's get set for a really fun show. Thank you so much for joining. Here we go. Buckle up. It's been a great week. I've had a lot of opportunity to spend time with parents this week. And of course, anytime you're with parents, conversation naturally goes to talking about their children, talking about our students. The parent events I've been involved in, they've ranged, but there's a lot of focus around the innovation center that we are building here at Branksome Hall. And so there's been a lot of conversation around innovation, what that means for our girls. And it's got me thinking a lot about what are we trying to achieve by having our students develop that innovator's mindset. We've talked about it a number of times here on the GarageCast, just how critically important it is to develop that fluency in the language of innovation, the mindset, frameworks, tools and techniques in order to be able to really participate in the society that is emerging. Well, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, is a part of our overarching innovation agenda. And while I'd been thinking about this, our board chair uh, recommended uh, a book. So thank you, Mona Malone, for bringing this book to my attention. It's a book called Not Just for the Boys, Why We Need More Women in Science. And it's been written by Dr. Athene Donald. I hope I'm pronouncing the first name correctly. That's A-T-H-E-N-E, last name Donald. And Professor Donald is a professor in experimental physics. I'm reading from her bio here. And master uh, uh, um, of Churchill College, University of Cambridge. Um, So she has really deep expertise. She specialized in soft matter physics and physics uh, that interfaces are at the intersection with biology. And this book, um, which was recommended to a number of us here, really brings into focus this underrepresentation of women uh, in STEM. And so it's got uh, a historical look uh, and then it's got a a forward um, a forward look. And you know, early on in the book, Professor Donald asks a really, really wonderfully pointed question. Can you think of a female scientist? So I'm asking you, the listening community, can you think? of a female scientist? Let me give you a moment to contemplate that. Okay, so I've given you a couple of seconds. 
In the book, she says that this is very difficult for people to do and that most people can name only one female scientist when asked this question and they need to reply sort of on the spot. Uh, and that scientist is Marie Curie. Um, uh, Marie Curie was a uh, Polish-French physicist and chemist who did pioneering research in the area of radioactivity. But it draws, again, attention to this fact, how underrepresented women are in STEM fields, and that there's this lack of role models. Our, our students, you know, we talk about this around entrepreneurship. Well, it's equally important in the area of science for our students to be able to point to and see uh, role models. And this book, um, you know, really allows us to start to unpack historically why this has been the case. The author draws on her personal experience as well as scientific evidence in the book. So it's not all just anecdotal. And through that, she examines why women are still underrepresented in so many areas of STEM. Again, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And she traces the, you know, this phenomena, the historical roots of this problem, stretching all the way back to ancient times when women were excluded from scientific discourse and education, all the way to present day, where women face subtle and overt barriers to pursuing and advancing their careers in STEM. But nevertheless, these barriers exist. And she explores the sort of societal stereotypes and expectations that shape how girls view themselves and their abilities in relation to STEM. She makes a good argument that having more women in science is not only a matter of fairness and justice, but it's actually a, 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 a necessity, it's imperative. It's a benefit to science itself to ensure that we have more girls and women participating in STEM. She does a great job of showing how diversity um, and uh, you know, diversity of, 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 of people and perspectives and their experiences enrich scientific research and innovation and how science itself can benefit from tapping into broad, diverse talents. And that if we exclude half the population, we are excluding 50% of diverse perspectives and experiences. And this is an important thing to think about. There's the equity piece, so important. But there's the benefit and advancement of science itself. And the book makes a really compelling case for why science needs to be more accessible and appealing to all people, regardless of their gender and their race or their background. And what I liked about the book as well was she offered practical suggestions and examples of how to achieve greater diversity and inclusion in science, both at the individual level and at the organizational level. And she highlights the importance of mentoring, role modeling, you know, providing role models, developing and, and, and giving access to networking and support systems. In the workplace itself, so if we just shift away from, from students in that journey, but to when they're out in the work world, she also focuses, focuses on important things like flexible working environments, family-friendly policies inside organizations, in order to be able to, to shift the culture. And she challenges some of the common myths and misconceptions about science that can discourage young girls from pursuing it as a career. It's a really, really excellent book um, to read. And it got me thinking about what we're doing at Branksome Hall. 
you know, with the building of the ICAST, our innovation center and studio theater. The book illustrates all of the factors that discourage girls from pursuing careers in STEM. And because, you know, biosciences aside, women are typically well below 50% in STEM disciplines. And we've known this at Branksom. It's part of what motivated us to want to build, you know, 30,000 square feet of innovation space here at the school. And the Innovation Center, you know, will provide many things to the student experience. It'll give them access to the spaces and the tools and the technology in those spaces. And that's an important thing to cement early in a girl's journey in terms of her exposure to STEM. She's got to feel comfortable and not feel that tools, again, whether we're talking about fabrication tools, whether we're talking about digital tools, uh, software-related tools, you know, we don't want them to think, oh, you know, this is kind of foreign to me, or these are, these are typically things that boys are involved in. And our building um, will allow us to scale that up um, and provide those resources. Secondly, the building is, is meant to facilitate the bringing in of what we say the outside world to the student experience. And so having women role models in the area of STEM, rocket scientists, biologists, uh, entrepreneurs that you know, have started perhaps companies, STEM-related companies, the ICAST will be a place where we uh, you know, can bring those resources in in an integrated fashion, either curricularly or co-curricular. And now the students see these role models. It allows us to build, we call it the ecosystem, this innovation ecosystem. Um, and in the book, they talk about mentoring and networking. And so this is something we have begun to develop on the entrepreneurial side, but it is also something we've been developing over the last number of years on the STEM side. I remember a, a great project. We were just recently um, retelling the story of this project, the Astro Pie Challenge, where students were able to participate in this challenge through the European Space Agency. And the challenge was to come up with an experiment uh, that, that involved using these small um, devices, uh, the Raspberry Pi. It's like a small computing device. And they're often used in schools uh, and hobby computing. So you needed to incorporate this device uh, in an experiment and write some code that would operate on this particular device. And the schools competed to have the chance, if you, if you managed to sort of pass the competition gate um, and you were selected, your code would be sent to the International Space Station, put onto a device, a Raspberry Pi device. That's why it was called the Astro Pi Challenge. And your code would be executed and do what it needed to do to carry out the experiment. So while our students were going through that with a really great educator here uh, at Branksome, Miss Gail Schwersch, we had from the broad community, somebody introduced us to this amazing aerospace engineer. And I, I won't share her name here on, on the podcast because I haven't pre-chatted with her. So, but she really was brilliant, um, brilliant in the area of aerospace engineering, but also so brilliant in terms of the way she so generously and openly made herself available to the students. And these kids, you could see that they just, their inspiration went up. Their connection to what they were doing in this competition it connected them to the real world. You had a real world aerospace engineer 
talking to them, asking questions, making suggestions. Suffice it to say that the team created this really unique experiment. Again, I won't get into all the details, but it involved using one of these Raspberry Pis to gather data, light data. I think it was something to do around light pollution. So it gathered this data from the International Space Station. In turn, this data was then provided to the students. They ended up winning this entire competition. It was unbelievable. They ended up having uh, a Zoom call of some sort uh, with the astronauts on the International Space Station. I mean, it was really transformational for these students. And one of these students, in our recent retelling of this story, uh, one of these students is is in her post-secondary now at university pursuing a degree in aerospace engineering. And so you can see how providing, just like we, we, you know, we read in, in this excellent book by Professor Donald, when you provide the resources and, the, and those resources are tools and, and spaces, but people. When girls can access those ecosystems, they can more fully understand whether a career in STEM is for them. And this is, this is you know, one of the really exciting things about the iCast. I mean, again, being a technology kind of nerdy geek fellow, I'm excited by the stuff that will be in this building. And the building itself, you know, is <laughs> it's highly innovative and exciting. But what really excites me is this ability to bring about this transformational shift and really encourage girls to see themselves, if they want, as being able to participate in the area of STEM. Now, the other thing that the building will do, we've really designed it so that it fosters community. You know, one of our values here at Bryanson Hall is sense of community. And so the building is being created in such a way to foster this community, to bring students together in ways that might not typically happen and build a community around kids that are really, really excited about STEM, about innovation. Girls that are really curious about understanding, you know, where's the intersection between STEM, entrepreneurship, innovation, and all the things that they are learning through their regular curricular studies. They'll be connected to each other in this space. And this allows us to create this sort of network effect, which again, to me, is super, super exciting. So it's a great read. You know, if you're an educator, I know we have a lot of parents that listen to the Garage Cast. So parents, if you're a student, you know, it is a very good read, uh, this book. And so again, thank you to Mona uh, Malone, um, our board chair, for recommending the book to me. Um, I had ordered it on uh, on Amazon, and it came pretty quickly. Um, it's a relatively short read. It was just recently published, and I really, really would encourage anyone who is looking for the historical reasons why women are underrepresented in STEM fields, and the attitudes that have caused this and how we start to change that. How we look at you know, ways to encourage girls to develop a keen interest and build the skills and experiment and explore a career in STEM beyond simply the traditional curricular things that happen. If you do happen to read this book and you've got your own thoughts, as always, love, love, love hearing from listeners. 
And I would love to have a conversation about this with you, whether you're in the community or whether you're outside the community. So happy reading, everybody. Welcome back. The next thing I wanted to talk about was an initiative that I've been involved in here with a really great working team. We are, we are looking at how we sort of reassess and reimagine our reporting process and method of reporting, report cards and progress reports. And this, I think, is something that I've touched on in a couple of past podcasts, just at a high level or in passing. But I've been reflecting more on, on this this week because we've had a number of working sessions. There are a series of streams. So there's um, four or five streams of educators that are working on different kind of parts of this. And the one that I'm involved in is Approaches to Learning, which we call ATLs as the acronym. And these are really the, the learning skills. Uh, the approaches to learning is something that is set out by the International Baccalaureate, the IB, but all education models or frameworks have an element of this. And these are the skills really for students that are not content specific or subject specific, but they are skills around becoming effective learners. I know we use the term quite often, lifelong learners, but it really, it's more than just a sort of cliche phrase. We've talked about so many times how in in today's day and age, where the level of change is happening so quickly, it's increasing. It's exponential, you've heard me say many times. And never before has there been such importance on an ability for our young people to develop this skill of being a lifelong learner. It's been important for many years, but I would say that with the huge shift that is coming in society, there's never been a more important time to be thinking about this. Now, you may be not familiar with what are these skills. Uh, Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're not familiar with the IB framework of approaches to learning. But what these are are skills that students uh, develop that really... It's how they learn how to learn, if that makes sense. And there are five sort of high-level buckets of skills. Communication skills, social skills, self-management skills, research skills, and thinking skills. And within each of these categories, there are many sub-skills. So for instance, under self-management skills, you know, we may have um, organizational skills that we're trying to um, teach the students and assess how they're doing in terms of being uh, organized. Um, we may have effective skills, for instance, you know, how well students can manage their own state of mind. Um, reflection skills, for instance. I won't get into, there, there's many, there's hundreds of sub-skills that can group up into these categories. So for instance, under thinking, you know, you can have critical thinking skills, for instance. You can have computational thinking skills. Um, so what our job is as educators is obviously to think about how do we scaffold these skills? You know, what is the scope and sequence? If you think about organization skills, what is the scope and sequence? 
You know, how do we build this skill with our students year over year? But what's equally important is to understand how do we as educators teach that in an integrated way? So whether it's, it's explicit or implicit. How do we assess, how do we observe and assess that? And most critically important, how do we share that feedback with students? How do we get students to reflect on that? You know, we've talked about how the focus on grades alone is missing such an important part of the learning journey for students. So how do we, how do we, we make it holistic so that they see these types of approaches to learning skills as being equally important to the subject matter skills? You know, understanding that if you've mastered communication skills or collaboration skills, just how valuable that is. The same as if you're in a math class and you, you've got a 90% or we use uh, international baccalaureate levels. So you've got a level six or seven, right? The kids focus on that subject matter assessment and evaluation but we don't see the same level of importance being placed on these other skills where they're really learning how to learn. These are the skills that are so important as they go off to post-secondary. These are the skills that allow them to couple their content knowledge with that really, really important development of mindsets, habits and approaches to learning. That's why we call them approaches to learning. And so this group that I've been working with here at Branksome Hall has really been focusing on not just how do we report to students and parents around the development of these skills, but we've been spending a lot, a lot of time thinking about discussing, modeling, brainstorming, diverging, converging on how do we really make this authentically important. You know, as educators, we do this. So how do we ensure that students see how important it is to us that they are building these skills? And from a reporting perspective, you know, to make it meaningful for educators, educators don't want to feel that they're just checking a box. Educators want to know that they are sharing feedback with students, that they are sharing feedback with parents in partnership around the development of these skills, that it's an authentic dialogue. And so we've been looking at, you know, what does this mean to the educator? And the subject area, if you, if you think about organization in the course I teach grade eight design, you know, what I'm looking for for organization is going to be different. What I observe in students when I'm saying, let me, let me have a sense of how a particular student or group of students is growing in this particular ATL skill it's going to look really different for me in design than it does for a physics teacher, for example, or a language teacher. We're both evaluating, we're both assessing the growth of the student in that, that area of, of organization. But we may be looking at different elements of that. And so there's got to be a way for a student to get a sense of I'm building this skill a little bit at a time at each touch point. You know, every time I attend class, every time I approach my work, but how does it, how is it nuanced? This is really getting to that sort of personalization, right? Personalization of how these skills are imparted 
subject to, you know, from subject to subject, and how we tailor that. How is it nuanced from student to student? So it's been a really exciting uh, project. It's been a, a, a design sprint project. So I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that we're using the design sort of thinking approach. It feels very um, um, sort of innovative and allows us to move quickly. And I've been really inspired and encouraged by the work because we're having really important conversations. Because by building these skills, I believe it sets students up for such great success in the actual subject areas. But more importantly, it sets students up for such great success when they leave the safety of their high school. When they go on to post-secondary, a lot of those support structures that they're used to in high school, they disappear, right? They're, they're sitting in lecture halls with large groups of students. And they don't have parents there saying, you know, have you done your homework? These skills allow them to continue to learn. It makes that transition from secondary to post-secondary easier. And, I, and I've seen this with my own children. My younger daughter is a, a graduate of Branksome Hall. And these skills are truly transferable. These skills allow the students to figure out, okay, how do I continue my learning journey now that I'm in a different environment, now that I'm tackling different content areas, now that I'm interacting with different professors who have different styles of teaching. All of these things are so important. And so I'm really, really appreciative and grateful for these educators that are working with me in this team to think about this and move this conversation and ultimately this implementation forward in a really meaningful way. Before we move into this week's tech tool tip, I wanted to talk about a movie that I recently saw. I can't, could not remember the last time I've even been to a movie theater. You know, with COVID, we really got out of the habit of doing that. Um, but recently, so last uh, Friday evening, I went to see a really great movie. Um, and it is, the movie is called Blackberry. And it's about the company, Research in Motion, that created this really unique device. I would say it was, in a sense, the precursor to the smartphones that we use today. Uh, Research in Motion is a Canadian company, and the movie explores the rise of BlackBerry devices and how quickly they lost market dominance. It tells the story. And there's elements of it that are clearly fictionalized. You know, you've got to make movies engaging. But I've also read a book on this um, and obviously followed this um, at being a Canadian company and being so immersed in technology myself. This was something I've, I followed closely over many, many years. But the movie really was excellent. It it felt nostalgic. It took me back. <laughs> I remember really clearly when I got my very first BlackBerry device. It was in the middle of the year 2000. So that's a long time ago. Some of you listeners are probably thinking I wasn't even born back then. What is crazy Mr. IP talking about? Well, back in the year 2000, just shortly after Y2K, I remember, I went to work for a small startup, was a web development company. Um, very early on when, when web development was really exploding, it was the sort of web development um, bubble in a sense. And I was working with this small company, it was called Caught in the Web. And I was in charge of consulting. So I played sort of a dual role of, of consulting and then architecting uh, web solutions for clients. And 
I'd been carrying a cell phone for many years prior to that. Um, but while I was at this organization, uh, the two founders, two young uh, entrepreneurs, uh, they were carrying these devices called Blackberries. Um, and as part of my role there, I was issued one of these uh, devices. And what it was, it was a like a pager-like device with a little keyboard on it. And it allowed you to um, send and receive email. Uh, it also allowed you to use, they had a proprietary um, kind of precursor again, messaging app um, where you could kind of message. It was called sort of pin to pin. Every BlackBerry had a pin number of sorts. Just think of it as a, a serial number. Um, and you could send some messages directly. Again, it's the, think of, you know, WhatsApp or Apple message uh, messages or Facebook messenger, all of these tools that we use today, they really came about in the mainstream through this very, very unique device that entered the scene. And the movie really does a great job of showing, first of all, just the, the grit of entrepreneurs and how this amazing device was created and brought to market. You know, BlackBerry from Research in Motion was just a great Canadian success story. And they rose to dominance. This was a device, you know, everyone was using it. They used to call it the, the, the Crackberry, right? It was so addictive in terms of uh, um, uh, its usage. And it was used by business people, yes, um, but it was also used by sort of all walks of life. You know, politicians carried these devices around and um, everyday people carried these devices around. And they eventually did um, sort of morph the product so that it became uh, cellularly uh, enabled, so it became a phone, and so then the BlackBerry device sort of transitioned from being this um, pager-like email-only device, although that was at its core, it expanded into um, a phone. Again, the precursor to what I would say is the modern um, smartphone. Beyond just being a nostalgic film that and a, and a great case study of how this really innovative technology came to market. The movie does a good job as well of showing how easily it is to become disrupted. You know, with the advent of the iPhone, which launched in 2007, I think it came out in June of 2007. It was announced earlier. And, 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 and when it was announced, Research in Motion, the company, RIM, that had developed the BlackBerry, did not look at this as being a threat. They felt, you know, what they had was exactly what the market wanted and that the iPhone represented kind of like a fun toy for the consumer market. And despite seeing the potential, it was ignored. This should sound familiar to listeners of the Garage Cast where we've talked about the innovator's dilemma, where new entrants come into the market and the incumbent looks at that product and says, it's not as good as ours and it's not what our customers want. What ends up happening? The iPhone hits the market. It's not perfect, but it evolves. And then an app store gets added to the iPhone. I can't remember if it was a year later, maybe a year and a half later. And suddenly there's this ecosystem that builds. And at a certain point, Research in Motion understands that there's a threat emerging. 
it actually became a double threat because with Apple bringing this revolutionary device into the market, it spurred Google, who was also working on their own phone, which looked like a BlackBerry, believe it or not. But Google very quickly put the brakes on and said, we need to change course. They understood what was happening. And that shows you the incumbent was stuck. They couldn't see, how would we move away from this? We have this great product that our customers clamor for. Google, who was not in the market, and a highly innovative company, a culture of innovation internally, processes internally that allow for innovation, leadership that understood innovation and disruption, they pivoted really quickly. And they created the Android operating system for smartphones. And some of you listening right now are listening on an iPhone or listening, or listening on an Android phone of some sort. It's probably a safe bet that none of you are listening to this podcast on a BlackBerry. With the entrance of Google into that market, we really started to see an acceleration in the decline of BlackBerry. What BlackBerry did was they tried to create a hybrid product. It was called the BlackBerry Storm, which kind of looked like an iPhone, but rather than using kind of multi-touch display, which Apple had patented, but there were ways around that implementation, which Google figured out as well. Research in Motion sort of stuck to this physical, how do we, we maintain the physicality of these devices? They were stuck in this paradigm of physical keyboards. Um, the, 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 the storm involved physically clicking the screen. Like, so just think of pressing down on the screen to you know um, trigger an action as opposed to what we're used to today, which is just lightly tapping with our finger. And it's all done through software. And so the BlackBerry story in this movie is a great example of the innovator's dilemma. It's also though a really important example of how leadership decisions a single decision can undo and destroy all of that value that has been built up within an organization. This is true across industry areas. If you're a tech company or some other type of business, if you're a not-for-profit, and I'd say even if you're a school, it doesn't take much to have a single decision, a failure of leadership in a sense, to cause this cascade ripple effect that undoes all of the value that has been created and nurtured and developed over time. And that's what happened to BlackBerry. They were at the top of their market. These devices were I don't know the exact market share figure off the top of my head, but they were, they were the market leader. And very, very quickly, we're talking about a matter of years. That market share continued to dwindle and dwindle until you started to see you know, it move to single digit percentages of the market. 8%, 5%, 2%. And they were completely disrupted. And so, you know, it really being, you know, a strategist and a futurist, being so steeped in innovation, these are the types of mindsets we're trying to curate in our students. So as they go out into the world as leaders, they're always keenly, keenly aware of the importance of looking at things truly strategically, not to become paralyzed. Decisions need to be made. And, you know, I talk about mistakes need to be made. It's how we learn. But it's important to make sure that we, we sort of check our own blind spots as well. 
It's okay to make mistakes. You take those mistakes, you take the learning from them, and you iterate quickly. But you got to be able to do that with a really open mind as well. That's an important aspect. You know, look and listen to differing opinions and perspectives. It's why it's so important as part of the innovator's mindset. That way, if you're making mistakes, you're learning from those mistakes as opposed to making mistakes and digging in, doubling down because you just are so convinced you're correct and not getting caught in that situation where you realize you do need to pivot, but it's too late. Or understanding if you are caught in the innovator's dilemma, how do you overcome that? And we won't get into sort of the how you overcome that in this episode. That would take a long time. And we've talked about that before as well in terms of strategies to, to make sure we don't get caught as organizations and individuals. We don't get caught in that trap of the innovator's dilemma. And as leaders, whether you are a current leader or an, an aspiring leader, someone that's just beginning that journey into leadership, how we ensure that with the data that we have, how we really know that we are looking at things broadly, openly, how we gather input, how we listen, how we gauge what's happening around us using data, how we take time to really understand our current customers, or stakeholders, but how we also understand where things are seeming to go in the future. So if you haven't, if you're looking for a good movie to watch, go watch the Blackberry movie. It's a really, really a fun movie. Uh, for me, a reflective movie, and I'd highly recommend it. So if you're looking for something to do for the upcoming weekend, there's my my movie, my movie suggestion. <laughs> Uh, of the week. And if you do end up watching it and you've got your own thoughts on this, don't hesitate to drop me a line, send me a direct message. Would love to hear from you on it. In our final segment here, I want to talk about a product, a software product called Microsoft Loop. That's L-O-O-P. And it's, uh, it's relatively new to the market. And it's something that Microsoft has been working on for a while. And it, it falls within sort of a category of applications that allow for collaboration, I would say. What it is, is it, it is a web-based um, service that really brings together teams and content and tasks uh, across you know, various apps um, and devices with really intelligent, you can see that there's some AI pieces that are being built in, so intelligent suggestions, page templates, um, and it really seems similar. The closest tool I can think to Microsoft Loop um, would be Notion, N-O-T-I-O. N, which is a tool that I've talked about before. I think I did a, uh, an entire segment on Notion before early on in the GarageCast. And so Microsoft has stepped into this because people are um, becoming accustomed to using these types of tools. When you go to the Microsoft Loop uh, uh, website, which you can find at Microsoft.com, just type in Microsoft Loop, they, their sort of sub-tagline tag, is think, plan, and create together like never before. And what's lovely about uh, this tool is it's got integration uh, with you know, the Office tools that we use. Um, it's got integration with um, Microsoft Teams. So if you're an organization that is leveraging Teams. And it allows you to create really unique, content-rich and content-diverse documents slash workspaces. What's really happening 
is a, a, a redefining of what a document is. You know, how do we tie together many elements that make a modern document? You know, so think of a Word document, um, a PowerPoint. You know, these are our traditional understandings of documents, and these can be turned into PDFs. And But these have been evolving. A notion, which is a tool that I've been using for a number of years, really excellent tool, has really redefined that by, by coupling in the ability to have sort of data and database functionality built into your document. Some of you would be thinking, well, why would I want to do that? Well, let's say we're, we're, we're I don't know, let's say we're creating a document where we are tracking um, innovative AI tools that uh, are relevant to um, schools and education organizations within education. Let's say we were creating a document. So traditionally, of course, you can create a, um, a Word doc. We could write a brief paragraph around, you know, what we're aiming to do, what we consider to be important. Uh, and then we can say, you know, refer to the table below. And maybe that table has three columns to it. Um, tool name, um, URL, so the web link, if someone wants to go to that tool, uh, and a column that says description. And then what you've got is this document that we can continue to update. Well, the way Notion works, and now where Loop, Microsoft's Loop, is stepping into, is imagine now we've got a database, very simple database, where we are keeping uh, this kind of content. And it can be a database that is being updated by one person or multiple people. Think of multiple educators contributing to this database every time they see a new AI tool, whether they've read about it or maybe something that they've been using, and they add it to this database. Could have the same three columns. Tool name, a link to the tool or the resources, and a, and a, and a field uh, or a column uh, with a description. And that lives within this collaborative environment. So now if I'm writing a document, so let's say I'm writing a document that I want to share with educators around um, something I'm specifically doing with grade eight students, and I'm writing it, and I can, with very easy key commands, suddenly say, you know what, I want to link and embed that database in my document. That is got it's it's got a, a particular focus my document, but I'm linking this external database, which just shows up integrated into my document. So what that allows me to do now is if I distribute this document to let's say other grade eight educators, that data source that's been embedded as people continue to add to it, my document has access to that. And so you get this this connection. But you can go beyond that. I could ask to give me a slightly different view on that, that, that sort of database element. It's being captured as a, as a table with three columns that we've talked about. But maybe I just want to represent it as two columns. Maybe I'm not looking to provide the web link to people, but I'm, I'm just looking at providing them names and descriptions. I can create a view of that. And the nice thing is you can bring people in to collaborate on these documents. And again, we, we do collaborate with things like Google Docs, highly collaborative environment. But this gives us all kinds of resources that move well beyond the simple Google Doc, which again, the Google Doc has taken the traditional document and just allowed us to collaborate together, whereas something like Microsoft Loop is allowing us to not only collaborate in the traditional document, but start to bring in all of these elements. So I may be working on a document and I've brought in these database um, elements that we've been talking about, and someone else is working on the document and with, again, very simple, integrated 
um, tools brings in, I don't know, part of a spreadsheet, for instance. Maybe something that's offering, um, I don't know, something that they've been tracking in a spreadsheet. It can flow into this really, really easily. Maybe somebody wants to embed elements of a chat. Maybe there's been a group of people. We've got different chat groups, for instance, at the school where we're discussing topics. So we actually have an AI think tank at Branksome Hall. Um, and there's a great chat group that we've got where we discuss things and we share resources. Well, I could embed that automatically into an, a document like this. And so now what you're getting is this ability to integrate content. Now people can comment. You can start to have dialogue around this content inside the document itself. And so while I've been a really big fan and will continue to use Notion, the Microsoft Loop product is, is really, really impressive. And so if you are a school who has access to Office 365, and we do at the school uh, here, and so for those of you who have that, this is a really, I think, important thing for you to look at and start to understand how you as educators can use it. And I think it's a valuable tool to start to have students experiment and explore as they create their own um, types of 21st century documents. And of course, Microsoft Loop is integrating um, their AI you know, um, tools into the platform. They call it Copilot. Um, again, remember they've, they've, they're big investors in ChatGPT, the open AI uh, company itself. And so they've started to build this in so that users can um, increase their efficiency, increase their ability to be uh, brainstorming and developing ideas, by using these sort of AI pieces right inside this platform, the, the, the AI-powered kind of contextual suggestions really changes the way users can collaborate and create documents. It's like you've got this AI assistant built right into uh, your team uh, within specific workspaces. So that's my tech tool tip of the week. Check out Microsoft Loop if you are interested into stepping into exploring how these types of tools might fit into your own workflow and your own teams. If you're not a Microsoft shop, uh, then, you know, again, take a look at Notion. Again, it's, a, it's an outstanding tool. And there are many, many tools like this that are beginning to emerge. And what this points to, you know, from a futurist perspective is, our idea of the document is fundamentally on a journey of change. And understanding that will be important um, as individuals, as educators, and as members of, you know, organizations where we, you know, the, the need to collaborate uh, is increasingly becoming important. So check that out. And I hope that you found this week's tech tool tip useful and intriguing. about brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope that you've enjoyed episode 29 as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you. You know, if you're a, a listener of the GarageCast, how much I, I value uh, and love and enjoy creating these podcasts for the Branksome community, our parents, our students, our educators, our alum, but also the much broader, broader audience, the many thousands of you that are out there listening in other education communities, and those of you that aren't even in education that are finding the, the discussions around innovation uh, and the future uh, to be intriguing. Um, and so again, really, it's a highlight of my day on Fridays to produce this. And it being Friday, I wish all of you a great upcoming weekend here in Toronto, Canada. We are getting a long weekend. So for those of you that might be in 
places where there is a long weekend, enjoy that extra day. For everybody in the listening community, I look forward to connecting with you again next week here on the Garage Cast. We will have episode 30, which is a milestone to have produced 30 episodes here since the start of the Garage Cast this year, season one. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, again, students uh, and their involvement in debate. Uh, We're going to talk about some other innovation things that are emerging here at Branksome Hall that I'm quite excited about. And so until that time, everybody, I hope that you stay very, very well. I hope that you stay curious, that you stay innovative. And until we meet again, I am your host, Michael Ianni Polarchio from Branksome Hall, saying ciao.